But when you got Hebrews chapter 2, do me, uh, do me a favor and go on and shout, I got it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 uh, through the end of the chapter. It's uh, near the end of the Bible, actually. So if you're unfamiliar with the scripture, you came with the Bible. It's near the end of the Bible. If you're super unfamiliar with the scripture, ain't no shame in the game. Go on and Google it on your cell phone. All right. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 uh, through 18. When you've got it, would you get, do me a favor and go ahead and, and rise to your feet? Just as we reverence the scripture together and read it aloud with one another. It reads this way. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The very words of scripture. Amen. You all may be seated here in the presence of God. In ancient times, when a person of prestige or a person of, of high societal status uh, wanted to kind of mark the moment uh, as uh, their uh, sort of prestige had hit a, a high level, they would have a painter, a master painter often come uh, and paint a portrait of them. Uh, and this particular uh, kind of thing would take uh, an incredible amount of time. So they would, uh, they would sit down in front of the master painter and the master painter would begin to, on one panel, uh, they would begin to paint the subject of their painting. Uh, and so it would take hours and hours and oftentimes even days and every now and then, there would be something that happened to the portrait, right? Uh, every now and then, uh, after they had conferred with the master painter and spent days looking over this particular painting, making sure that it resembles the person who they were painting, uh, every now and then something would happen, uh, and the panel would get obliterated through exterior stains, and essentially what the master painter would do is the master painter, uh, he would not throw away the panel. Uh, as a matter of fact, if there was ever anything that happened to this particular painting, what he would do is he would take that same panel uh, and he would then ask the subject of the portrait to sit back down and he would redraw or repaint the subject onto that same panel. 
And, and you have to understand that this is uh, similar to what God uh, did in a garden many, many years ago. He was uh, a master artist, if you will, who uh, had made in incredible creations and uh, incredible things he brought into existence. And yet, uh, when he got done with all of the things that he had created, he made something special. He was a master artist. No, this time he sat down in the garden looking at all the things that he had made and said that they were good. And he took of the dust of the earth and he made a master painting. And he called it Adam. And Adam was remarkable. Adam was incredible. Adam was distinct from all the other things that God had created because Adam was made in the image of the master artist. And you have to understand that this portrait that, that God painted, it, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like the Mona Lisa, right? Y'all ever been to the Louvre? Y'all remember when we used to travel? Right. So before I got married, I was a bit of a jet setter and I made uh, I made my way uh, just because I felt like, man, everybody been talking about uh, Mona Lisa and Paris for a long time. And I went uh, on my own as a single man to Paris and walked around. Some of y'all just cried uh, for me. Uh, I walked around Paris by myself. And so I said, I've got to go to the Louvre and I've got to see the Mona Lisa. And so I go into the Louvre and I'm walking around and I said, man, I've been told from childhood about the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is supposed to be the most important painting that's ever probably been painted of this subject, this portrait called Mona Lisa. And then you get, uh, you get to where the Mona Lisa is and there's this huge crowd sitting around a little box on the wall. And you get up closer and you realize... That's the Mona Lisa? Come on now. It's a little box of a woman on the wall. You see, the, the painting that Adam uh, is, 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 is painted in, that the master artist made, uh, it isn't like the Mona Lisa. It isn't overhyped. It is incredible. It is, it is beautiful, but something happened to the panel. You see, something happened, uh, something happened to the panel uh, that the image of God was painted on, and all of a sudden it became tainted. The, the panel became uh, obliterated with exterior stains, and here's the good news of what we came to celebrate today, is that God has called, the master artist has called for the object of the portrait to be redrawn. And so Jesus Christ sat back down and the master artist began to repaint on that same panel. You see, that, that, is, that is the beauty of the incarnation. And as we get ready to turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 2, what we've seen in Hebrews chapter 1 is this incredible picture of uh, the divinity of Jesus and the, the creative power of Jesus, that all things were made through him and, and for him. And he is the one through whom he sustains existence by the word of his power, right? We, we see all of those different things. And the author of the book of Hebrews is 
trying to shine a light on the reality of who Jesus is in connection to God as God in the flesh. And then he turns over the page to Hebrews chapter 2 and wants us to understand the humanity of Jesus and how that impacts our salvation, how that impacts how that impacts our lives. And so if there was a big idea for our time together this morning, it would be this, that Jesus became a human to restore dignity to humanity. Jesus became a human to restore dignity to humanity. And I've got three points that kind of give us the table of contents to where we're going this morning. The first thing is our problem. The second thing is our big brother. And the third is our suffering, our problem, our big brother, our suffering. I want to preach from the subject, supremely human, supremely human. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us this morning. Um, Father, we thank you for, uh, even as I've prayed earlier, for to hear worship and sing along and exalt Jesus together with our brothers and sisters Today And now we pray, God, as as we've been able to give, that you uh, would explain your word. Would you illuminate it, God? Would you use me uh, to help us understand more clearly who you are and what you're doing in the world? It's to that end that I'm available to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Oftentimes, when it comes to talking uh, about our humanity, we either have too low of a definition or too low of, uh, of uh, w- what we observe of humanity and human beings, or we have too high uh, an understanding of the value of human beings. Earlier on in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, the author of the book of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then uh, in verse 7, he's making the distinction that God subjected the world to human, human beings and not to angels. Verse 7, he says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, you might think that the author of the book of Hebrews is specifically talking about Jesus here, and, and yet uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of that, and yet he's really speaking of human beings in general. Uh, there is a certain level of honor in all of creation that human beings have because we are made in the image of God. And in quoting Psalm 8, the author speaking of human beings uh, and all of what the author says hearkens back to a time before sin had entered into the world. So Genesis 1 and verse 26 says this, and the words will come up on the screen. God creates the world. Then 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Human beings are the only things that are created in the image of God. Let us make man in our image and give them dominion over all of creation. So in that way, we are considered uh, supposed to be people who are able to rule over creation in a way that glorifies God and shows off God's glory because we are made in the image of God. Uh, And yet something happens. 
So we're to have dominion over all the earth. We're made in the image of God. We show off the glory of God just by being made in his image. And as God, in the overflow of who he is, wants to extend who he is to human beings and have other people experience who he is through human beings, something happens. Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden, Adam and Eve believe something that Satan says over something that God has spoken. And all of a sudden, sin enters into the world, and now Adam and Eve notice that they're naked. They, they notice that they're naked when sin enters into the world, and now the Bible says uh, that that they were naked before and they felt no shame, but now the Bible says that they begin to cover themselves. They, they, they begin to hide. They, they, they begin to try to project something about themselves that isn't true of who they are on the inside. They realize that something is wrong and there's a separation between their reality and what they actually present. And here's what God says to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? What does Adam say back to God? He doesn't say, God, I'm right here. As if God needed to know. But he says, this woman that you gave me. This woman that you gave me. Shame enters into the world. Now, all, all of a sudden, Adam begins to blame shift to other people. And, and the reality of your situation and my situation is that ever since shame enters into the world through humanity, the, the, the dominion and the glorification of God through our creation as people made in the image of God has been tainted because sin enters into the world. And one of the ways that we, we see this as, as, as we as human beings have been changed and altered, if you were to just look at uh, mental health, for instance, and uh, how we view ourselves compared to other people, what, what happened when sin entered into the world is that people began to deal with different mental health issues as just part of the fall. So if you take, for instance, the uh, the mental health condition of narcissism as human beings. Narcissism, for many people, they think of narcissism and they think of somebody who thinks of themselves in a grandiose way. Like they, they are uh, self-aggrandizing people. I am the center of the world. Everything revolves around me, right? Uh, and, and yet, if you were to look closer into narcissism, what you would realize is that mental health experts say that narcissism is, uh, is a spectrum. In other words, you can be a person on one end, now that sin has entered into the world, who says, man, the world revolves around me, and think of yourself as the center of what's happening in the world, or you can be a person over here still on the narcissism spectrum who constantly says over themselves, I'm a failure. Not I failed, I'm a failure. I, I, I just can't get it right. I, you know what? They're really good at that. I'll never be good at that. 
man, I was a good mom yesterday. Today, I just, I'm just a failure of a mom. Man, I, I, was, I, was, I was loving, uh, but, but something in me is saying that, 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 that for some reason, man, I, I'm, really, I'm really yearning for acceptance and belonging, and, and, and I keep losing it. So sin enters into the world. Shame enters into the world. We begin to cover ourselves. Now, in, just within mental health itself, you've got people who think of themselves as the center of the world and people who think of themselves all the time, but it's just in a self-hatred way. It's two sides of the same coin. And the reason for that is because you're still the centerpiece of your life. Even if you're not thinking great thoughts about yourself, you're still always thinking about yourself. And that is one way that sin has impacted all of us. It has impacted us to the core in such a way that in one way, like this is just one way in a million other ways that sin has twisted the image of God that exists on the inside of each and every one of us. Sometimes we think too high of ourselves. Sometimes we think too low of ourselves, but we always think of ourselves. And what God created you and me to be is an extension of his love to look up and out onto others, up and out onto others. And the good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that is what he is doing in the world. He is restoring the original image that he created us in so that we can be people who look up and out to others to extend and give love. Our purpose is to show off the glory of God and have uh, creation under our authority, and that has gotten twisted. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve began to cover themselves, and Adam said, this woman that you gave me. You see, we've been passing the blame ever since this. Don't put that on me. It, it, it would have been just vote, you know, if we would have just voted for so-and-so, then we would have been fine. No, the, the reason we have so many problems in the world is because you and I are in the world. So right now in this moment, the self-aggrandizing narcissist in the room says, don't put that on me. That ain't my fault. Is And then... And then the the self-hating narcissist said, I I don't hate sin, I hate myself. And what Jesus is doing in the world is restoring that humanity. He has sat back down so that the painting could be redrawn onto the same panel. And you say, Steve, but that's a pretty bleak scenario. Uh, That's a pretty bleak picture of of what is going on in the world. And I would say that you're right. And yet that's not where the story ends. Look with me at verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look with me at verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So notice the language there. Notice the language of uh, brothers and sisters. Notice the language of children or sons of glory or sons to glory. It's through Jesus becoming a human being that he is restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And really, the reality is we don't have anything to do to get it. He came for us. He, he became one of us. He got tired. He got hungry. He was thirsty. He, he wept. He had anxiety. He was troubled at times. He experienced poverty. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he did it all without sin. He was tempted in every way and never gave into it. Always did the will of the Father, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, took that on for you and me. So something is tainted in us. Jesus steps back into humanity in order to restore us back to our original state of people who give off the glory of God and have authority over creation Now he steps into humanity in order to do what we cannot do ourselves. Y'all remember the movie Men in Black? Men in Black? Y'all remember when, uh, if if y'all, am I too old at this point to be talking about Men in Black? Y'all remember Will Smith had a movie called Men in Black? Y'all remember when the alien took over the farmer Edgar's body? It's an alien in, in this man's body. And, and, and throughout the movie in Men in Black, there's aliens that, are take, that have taken over, taken the form of, uh, taken the form of uh, a human being. And sometimes I think that's the way that we think of Jesus. Like Jesus is God, but he just, he just, he just put on uh, a human onesie. And, uh, and so he's doing everything as God, but he's got a, a human onesie on uh, as, as a way to, to represent us. And that's not what the Bible says about Jesus. What the Bible says about Jesus is that Jesus, who was divine and has always existed, stepped into humanity and took it all on. He had blood running through his veins. He had flesh over his bones. He got scared. He got sad. He wept at his friend Lazarus' funeral. He had no place to lay his head. Whatever you experience in this life, Jesus Christ experienced that. But the beauty of this storyline is not just that he experienced it, but look back with me at verse 10. He says, in bringing many sons to glory, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Not only does Jesus identify with us in every way, 
his perfect life as a human being and his sacrificial death on our behalf means that you and I become children of God. Like that's, that's crazy. We, we, become, we become children of God. The, the, the glorifying dignity we had lost in the garden has been restored through the person and work of Jesus. And we receive the inheritance that Jesus accomplished on the basis of nothing we ever did. So to the person who stews in their own self-hatred or self-pity, you're a child of God. God sees you the way that he sees his son as perfect solely on the basis of your union to him by faith. Based on nothing you ever did. So to the person who who lives in the self-aggrandizement of them being the centerpiece of all of uh, creation, Jesus, who really has reason to think of himself uh, in a grandiose way, laid down his rights in humility for us. He he, He calls you and I to get our eyes up off of ourselves and onto the needs of others. He is our big brother. He saw our situation that something was twisted in creation. He steps into creation to live like nobody else and ultimately to give us the opportunity to be called children of God. But that's not all. One of the issues that many people have as we look at, as we round third and head for home, one of the issues that we have with the supremacy of Jesus is the fact that suffering exists in the world. Uh, We think if, if Jesus is truly supreme, If Jesus is sure enough supreme, if he is really all of what you guys have been talking about for the past several weeks, then why does suffering exist in the world? Why does it happen? Can we just be real? We've been talking about the supremacy of Jesus and you still going through something. How can Jesus truly be supreme if that's the case? Look back with me at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is one of the things that that people get tripped up over uh, when when they think of why evil exists in the world. This is one of the things that is like foundational level issue that people have with Christianity. If God is good, why why are there bad things that happen in the world? As a matter of fact, if you were to study multiple religions uh, throughout world history, much of uh, what those people practice is a kind of uh, desire to separate themselves from pain uh, and suffering, in particular, the gods that may be worshipped as a part of that. And, And on the other end of kind of where people tend to land when it comes to the problem of evil in the world and, and the situations that we experience as human beings uh, is this one perspective. Y'all, y'all may have heard it. If I put enough good out into the universe, then good will come back to me. If I put enough good out into the universe, then good is going to come back to me. 
And, and just imagine if you follow that logic all the way out. I'm just saying this is a general idea of the way people think uh, about uh, life and how to experience good things in life. What happens when good doesn't happen to you? Did you just not put enough good out into the world? What, what happens when you experience suffering when the principle of life is put enough good out into the universe, will come back to you? If you follow the logic out, you're responsible for your own suffering because you haven't put enough good out into the world. Now, to an atheist who says God, God doesn't exist, why does evil happen still in the world? Why do bad things happen, happen in the world? There, there's no God. They, 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 they have no purpose. There is no purpose specifically to life. You create your own purpose because God doesn't actually exist. Well, it means that your suffering is pointless. There is no reason for you to suffer. It has, it has no purpose in your life and in the world. It just happens. And I'm not saying that Christianity has this, is going to resolve all the tension and issues of what we have when, when we think of bad things happening into the, in the world and all of the suffering that we experience in this life, but I do think it has the best answers. Because Christianity says that the God that we worship saw us in our suffering. And he stepped into it. He stepped into it as a complete human being. To identify with it. And to identify with everything that you ever go through. So that in the midst of your suffering, you can always say, Jesus is here. here. Christianity says that bad things are going to happen, but God is going to use it for your good. Christianity says bad things are going to happen, but Jesus suffers with you and for you. Christianity says bad things are going to happen, but Jesus, Revelation 21, promises to wipe away every tear from your eye and mourning and crying will be no more. That's what Christianity says. That, that's, that's what it means when Jesus takes on full humanity, lives as a perfect human being, always obeys the will of the Father, experiences all the anxiety that life has to offer, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, He suffers with us and for us. In the past three years, I, I preached my grandfather's funeral. My dad died when I was young. And when my grandfather passed away, I didn't think it was going to affect me the way that it did. But then I realized that in many ways, my grandfather was like my dad because I didn't really know my dad. So it, it affected me a lot. 
And then I preached my cousin's funeral. And then I preached my mother's funeral. And then I preached my grandmother's funeral. All in the past three years. And and what helps me is not suffering is pointless. Suffering just happens. It it, it doesn't have any purpose. What, 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 What helps me is not that I just haven't put enough positive energy back out into the universe to then reciprocate it and and get it back. But what helps me is that the God I worship was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What helps me is that he's so transcendently supreme that he's using my suffering for good. What helps me is that he knows my suffering personally and he suffered for me to restore me to the human being that God intended me to be. What what helps me is that one day he promises to make all things right. You see, every time we allow our sin to draw us into self-pity and shame. Every time you do a good deed or have a good week as a Christian and you allow that to puff up in your heart and self-righteousness and to think, man, I'm really, I'm really doing my thing as a Christian. Like, look, look at me compared to other people. All of that is an affront to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because somewhere deep down in your soul, there's something in you that says, I can earn this. As a matter of fact, there's there's something in you that says, I have to earn this. Jesus, you're cool to begin with. You're you're good to begin with. Man, thanks for your righteous, clothing me in your righteousness that, that I began Christianity with. But man, I'm, I'm going to earn it myself from here on out. You see, every time you allow yourself to wallow in self-pity and shame, or you allow yourself to say, man, I'm doing my thing with this. Look at me. You're saying that in my humanness, I can do this myself. And the reality of your situation and my situation is that we were in dire straits apart from Jesus Christ becoming flesh and living perfectly as a human being. Look with me at verse 17 as we get ready to close. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has not only become uh, the, the, the high priest, but he has stepped in to make the sacrifice himself. He himself is the sacrifice. That's why he is now our great high priest. That word propitiation is just a $10 word that means the wrath of God has been appeased through the person and work of Jesus. There's no more wrath. So there's no more need for you to try to earn anything. 
because it's been fully satisfied with the perfect life of Jesus Christ. So when I find myself in self-pity and, and, and shame, the thing that I have to remind myself of is not, man, I got to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. But because of the incarnation of Jesus, I get to look to Jesus and say it's been, it's been accomplished. Grace suits my case. And that wouldn't be the reality for any of us apart from Jesus Christ becoming a human being. You see, sin has twisted some stuff in us. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus identifies as a fully human being, lives perfectly like none of us could ever do, dies in our place and for our sins. He's done something with our suffering so that he suffers with us and for us. And apart from Jesus Christ becoming a human being, none of that would be possible. Jesus Christ became a human being to restore dignity to human beings who are made in the image of God so that we don't turn in on ourselves, so that we turn up and look out to love others and glorify God and have authority over creation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness. Uh, we thank you, God, that Jesus Christ became a human being. So often we think of him as somebody who just put on a human onesie. And yet he became flesh and blood. God, we thank you not just for Jesus' divinity, but we thank you for his humanity. We thank you, God, that he identifies with us in our suffering. We thank you, God, that suffering is something that you can use for good. Sometimes we, we can't explain it. We get sideswiped by grief. But our Savior was a man of sorrows. He knows right where I'm at. And so we thank you for it. We thank you for him. We thank you that in your love you sent him. God, would you allow that truth to help us live differently from this day on? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.